Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is a quote from a very famous book by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the series Aslan, the lion, he's the king of Narnia, and he's representative of Jesus throughout all of the books. I won't spoil much more than that, but I think that this quote here gets at an attribute of God that we don't talk about very often. He's not always safe, but he's always good. Psalm 5, the passage we're looking at today, is, a th- is the third lament psalm in a row. Four and three were also lament psalms. But it's a, different, it's a bit different than three and four because in Psalm 5, David uses imprecatory language. And imprecatory is a big word that basically means to curse. You'll see that there's a juxtaposition or a contrast between the way God is blessing certain people and punishing others. And it, it may feel a bit flip-floppy at first, but here's what I want you to think about as we read through it together. God may not always be safe, but he is always good. He's just. And David is calling upon God's justice to be in action in this psalm. Now, I'm going to be using the words just and justice and justly a lot today. And kids, justice is what it means. It's a, justice is a key part of who God is. When we say that God is just, it means that he always chooses to and ensures that the right thing will happen. Sometimes his justice feels like it takes a long time like when bad things happen to the people that we love. But we trust that eventually, by the time Jesus comes back, everything will be made right. And when that happens, the people who honor God will be blessed, and the people who reject him and hate him will be punished. Justice. Here's the big idea from Psalm 5. God's holiness assures that he will always act justly. God's holiness assures that he will always act justly. And so let's read through Psalm 5 together, but before we do that, can you please pray with me? Father God, we humbly approach your word this morning, excited to see what you want to say to us. God, we pray that as we look at Psalm 5, that we would see a clear picture of how just you are, how holy you are, how loving you are. God, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you show us the sin and bad patterns in our lives that need to be changed? Would you also encourage us, encourage those of us who need encouragement this morning? 
because you are the God who listens to us, who welcomes us, and who gives us refuge. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's read Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, and you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and evil man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. In the first three verses, we see that God is just because he is the God who listens. These first three verses, David starts out very similarly to how he has the past two psalms, he calls out to the Lord for help when he's in need. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. He trusts and he knows that God is listening to him. That's why the first way that God acts justly in this psalm is by being a God who listens. He's always listening. He's never too busy for David And he's never too busy for you and I. David is calling out from a place of despair, of hopelessness. He knows that whatever is happening right now, that he has no control over. He's helpless, but he knows the one who can help. And he's confident that God's listening. And pay attention to the the way that David says these things here. He's not sheepishly wondering if God has time to pay attention to him. He's boldly calling out, give ear to my words, give attention to the sound of my cry, for to you do I pray. It is extremely comforting to know that the God hears us every time we call out to him. He is always present. He is always there for us. It doesn't matter how significant or insignificant you may feel that your situation is. He's always willing to listen. So if you today have not talked to God in a long time, maybe not ever, or maybe for whatever reason you feel uh, nervous or scared to, maybe you don't even know if he's real. 
Know that he is always listening. He is the God who listens. He wants to listen to you. I, I think it was Tim Keller who said, we should pray every emotion we have to God. So if you are you know, living the highest, you've, you're at the highest point of your life you've ever been right now, or if you're at your lowest, God is listening to you. He wants you to call out to him. Notice, too, that David continually acknowledges the position that God's in. Oh, Lord, he says twice. He calls him my king and my God. When David is calling out to God for help, there's no question in his mind about who God is or what he's capable of. God is his king. He's our Lord. He's our God. He isn't a genie in a bottle. He's not at our beck and call, ready to do anything we want at the snap of our fingers. He's our king who's always willing to listen. And so when we pray, we should be careful not to treat God like our servant or like our handyman. He's not there to just fix everything that we want him to. He's our king. And so when you pray, when you call out to him for help, don't ever be afraid to ask him for things. Don't ever be afraid to cry out. But make sure that you do so humbly. And and I get this wrong probably more often than not. This is a, a gentle reminder for me to reset my mindset. God is my help, absolutely, but he's also my king. Last thing to bring out of these first three verses is the repetition of in the morning. Verse three, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Does this mean that God only listens to us before lunchtime? No. Thank God he doesn't. What this means is that, you know, David had a common time to do his devotion, so to speak. He spent his mornings praying and sacrificing and spending time with the Lord. He would dedicate them to prayer. I know for me and for some other people in this room right now, mornings are a great time to do that. They're a great time to start your day before you get out of bed even, before you grab your phone to just grab your Bible and spend time with the Lord. I find starting my day with God is a decision I never regret, but there's no law or verse in the Bible saying that you have to do it before 9 a.m. Just find a time that works for you. The point that should be drawn out from this statement is that David had a plan and that he followed through with it consistently. My mom and dad are some of the people I respect most in this entire world, and they never did their devotions in the morning. They always did it every evening. It doesn't have to be the morning but have a plan and follow through with it consistently. Moving on in verse four. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The second way that God acts justly is that he is the God who hates sin. This is where the language begins to switch a little bit. It becomes harsher. This is the imprecatory part of the psalm, the cursing part. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. This is 
a key characteristic of the holiness of God. He hates sin. He can't even tolerate it. It it cannot be in his presence. And so evil cannot dwell with him. It can't be near him at all. Verses five and six get even harder to swallow. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes and you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. What does it mean when he says you hate all evildoers? You destroy those who speak lies. What does that mean? That's heavy language. Does this mean that God hates people? Well, no. The most famous verse in the Bible, Mariah read it a few minutes ago, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the entire world, not some of it, not most of it, everyone. Continuing this idea, Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, but God chose his great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves people. He doesn't begin to love them after he saves them. He loved us that he loved us while we were still sinners, pre-salvation, and you can't love someone and hate them at the same time. So what does this mean? You hate all evildoers. Well, think of it like this. All of us in this room have felt the painful effects of cancer. Either we've had the disease ourselves or we know someone very close to us who's had it. And we hate that cancer. We hate it because it's stolen loved ones from us. It's taken away years of their life. It's caused them unimaginable pain and fear. And we hate that cancer that's destroying their body, but we love that person so much, we would never begin to hate the person because we hate the cancer inside of them. And the same way, God hates sin. He hates it because it has stolen loved ones from him. It's taken away years from their lives. It's caused his creation unimaginable pain and fear. He hates the sin that's destroying the people he loves, but he doesn't hate the people that are filled with the disease called sin. And so when David says, you hate all evildoers, he's not lying He's using a poetic device called hyperbole or exaggeration to get his point across. God hates sin with his whole heart, but he loves the sinner infected by it. Because he is holy, because sin cannot be in his presence, it can't dwell with him. He must destroy it. And he doesn't just destroy sin, but he destroys the sinner as well in the final day of judgment. He destroys liars, like it says in verse six. He abhors, he hates bloodthirsty, deceitful men. The very definition of hell is complete separation apart from God. Something I feel the need to bring up here is that David leaves the justice, the destruction of this sin, the destruction of his enemies up to the Lord. He's not looking for vengeance. 
He's not trying to get back at the people that have wronged him throughout his life. And there were a lot of people that wronged David throughout his life. And in the Lord's infinite wisdom, he doesn't give us the behind-the-scenes details of this psalm. We don't know if it was his son Absalom's betrayal or if it was someone else. We don't know, and it doesn't really matter. Because these things are true no matter what situation David found himself in. And, you know, imprecatory psalms weren't just for the Old Testament kings to pray. They're for us as well. There are still times and places in the 21st century when it is right and very much appropriate for us to pray these. And when we pray imprecatory psalms, we should always be calling upon God to act justly, not seeking to be vigilantes of what we think is right. Hebrews 10.30, quoting from Deuteronomy, says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Leave the punishment of sin up to the Lord. It's not your responsibility. It's not my responsibility. Also, when we pray in precatory psalms, it has to be done cautiously and humbly. David knows that he belongs in the category of evildoers, of liars, of bloodthirsty, deceitful men. He knows that he's sinned countless times. He's done all of these things. He fits into these categories perfectly. He knows how much his sin runs in his life more than anyone else. I know how much I sin more than anyone else. I know the darkness of my heart. I know the bitterness I hold towards people, the irritability that I hide. The sin of my life is more than anyone else I know. I'm boastful. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. And by Jesus' standards, that anger is equivalent to murder. I'm, a, I'm bloodthirsty too. So how can I possibly pray for God to destroy these kinds of people if I'm one of them? How can I possibly pray, you hate all evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies? How can I possibly pray this? Because of this next line. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Do you know why we can pray these things? Because the third way that God is just is by being the God who welcomes. Thank God for this verse. Through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. It reminded me of a story later in scripture in Luke 23 I'll just read it for you two others this is while well, Jesus is on the cross two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him and when they came to the place that is called the skull there they crucified him and the criminals one by one one on his right and one on his left 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. And this part, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Within a few hours, of Jesus saying this, the criminal that entered the house of God, or that criminal entered the house of God because of the abundance of his steadfast love. He bowed down towards the holy temple of the Lord and he worshiped and he didn't do a thing to deserve that. God is the God who welcomes bragging, lying, deceiving, bloodthirsty men and women into his house and allows them to be in his presence. We don't deserve that. But his steadfast love is abundant, it says. It's overflowing. It's so infinite that we can enter his house, we can be with him, and all that we need to do is what the thief on the cross did. He humbled himself. He knew that Jesus was actually the king. And he asked him for forgiveness. This is why I love the first line in that song we sing, Who am I? that the highest king would welcome me. I don't deserve the abundance of his steadfast love. I'm a liar. I'm a sinner. I, destroy, I deserve to be destroyed. Like those David talks about in verse six. Before we move on from this, I do need to talk about the word, the Hebrew word that is translated as steadfast love. Now, you don't need to know any Hebrew at all to read the Bible and meet with God and be changed by it. You don't need to know any Hebrew. But if you are going to know any Hebrew, I would say that this word should be on your short list. It's the word hesed. It's a beautiful word, and it doesn't exactly have a one-to-one translation equivalent in English, but it refers to the covenantal love and kindness that Yahweh shows his chosen people. It's an unending, never-failing, consistent love rooted in the promises and the relationship that God keeps with his people. It's his commitment, his dedication, his faithfulness to the people he loves. And so whenever you see the phrase steadfast love in the Old Testament, it's that word. And today, anyone who has been welcomed by God as a Christian, as his disciple, as his son or daughter, is a recipient of this hesed. Through the abundance of his steadfast love, his hesed, we can enter his house and be with God Almighty. 
and we're talking about justice here, to be honest, this is the most unjust thing that happens in this entire psalm. The fact that God would welcome sinners, criminals, liars, deceivers into his house without them doing anything, that's the most unjust part of this entire psalm. Being a Christian isn't only about spending time with God in his house. It also requires action. And so we read in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. David asks God to lead him in righteousness. He desires to be a righteous person. And because he knows that whenever he tries to do things by himself, it doesn't turn out so well, he asks, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of, in spite of, in front of my enemies and make your way straight before me. After you've been changed by God and you've experienced his, has said his steadfast love, you should want to live for him. No matter how long you've been a Christian, ask him to lead you into righteousness. It's a life very well worth living. Moving on, in verses 9 to 10, we see the fourth way that God is just is because he is the God who punishes sin in verses 9 to 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. And let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. And although we're back to imprecatory language again, there is, I think, a slight progression from verses 4 to 6 to 9 to 10. We see God moving from hating sin to punishing it. Make them bear their guilt. Let them fall. Cast them out. These are actions that David is calling on God to do to the wicked, to those who don't fear him, to those who don't acknowledge him as their king. And these are tough words. It's not exactly the first psalm that uh, modern worship songwriters go to when they're looking for the next big hit. It's harsh, but what David is doing here is calling on God to treat people according to their guilt. He's asking God to give the wicked what they deserve. And again, it's very hard to read this without being reminded that I deserve nothing more than to be cast out because of the abundance of my transgressions, my sin. We all like to be the hero. We're so prone to just call out to God and ask him to bring justice upon everyone else but love and mercy for ourselves. But we can't read this without, we can't read this honestly without acknowledging that we have sin in our lives as well. But even more abundant than my sin, the abundance of their transgressions, even more abundant than the abundance of their transgressions is the abundance of his steadfast love. Another song that we sing comes to mind, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more than that. 
Whenever we read imprecatory psalms, we need to be reminded that without Jesus, all of us are done. Thank God for his abundant, steadfast love that infinitely infinitely outweighs the abundance of my sins against him. I've rebelled against him. And I deserve to bear my own guilt. And yet, for the second time today, Romans 5, 8, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, we see that God is just because he's the God who gives refuge. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who, ex- that those who love you, your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice and let them ever sing for joy. Something that I love about lament psalms is that no matter how harsh they get, no matter how uh, much of a downer they are, no matter how dark they are, they always end with hope. You know, last week, the last verse, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. They always end in hope. David and the other psalm writers created these psalms during their darkest moments, moments when they were afraid, angry, depressed, and helpless, and yet they always end in hope. What kind of person can sing for joy during their darkest moments? Someone who spends every day in prayer with the Lord. Someone who has entered his house and felt his steadfast love, who has worshipped him. That kind of person has spent their life rooting themselves deeply into the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ. And this kind of joy doesn't happen naturally. I know for sure that my gut reaction isn't to rejoice and to sing for joy when life gets hard. The kind of person who's able to do this is the kind of person who takes refuge in the Lord but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Why? Because he spreads his protection over us. It says here, if you love the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus, you will exalt in him no matter what difficulties life throws at you. And now, I'll admit that it's... uh, pretty easy for me to say these things to you right now. I'm not dealing currently with any major traumatic events. I don't have a life or death illness. I'm not dealing with losing my job because of my beliefs and my beliefs and my marriage is going pretty well. It's going great actually. And it's easy for me to say these things because right now I don't have to deal with the intense courage that it takes to rejoice in the Lord during trials. And so uh, don't take my word for it. But what you can do is trust that the Bible is the word of God, that it is living and active, and that it is never wrong. 
And so what verses 11 and 12 say here are true. I can't convince you to do anything, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit can. And I will say that from personal experience, during my darkest and most helpless moments in life, when I have chosen to run to God as my refuge, this unexplainable feeling bubbled up from somewhere inside me. And I felt peace that didn't make any sense in light of my circumstances. You might even call it joy. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that you may that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. Now it's about time that I contradict something that I said right at the beginning when I first got up here. God isn't safe, but he's good. Let me tell you this, he's definitely not safe if you choose to reject him. He's definitely not safe for the wicked. But if you have chosen to take refuge in the Lord, there is no safer place than you can be than under the protection of a God who is listening to you, who hates sin, who welcomes you into his house. He promises here to spread his protection over you and cover you with favor as a shield. He's a just God. And he's just because he welcomes us. He's just because he listens to us. He's just because he hates and punishes sin. And he is just because he gives us refuge in times of need. Would you please pray with me to that God? Father, we come before you grateful and humbled at the fact that the highest king would listen to us. You don't owe us anything. As we've already prayed, we don't deserve anything from you. But you give us so much. You have given us yourself. You've given us your son. And we are so grateful for the fact that you listen and welcome us to yourself. Thank you, O Lord, that you are a God who gives us refuge in the times that we feel like we have nowhere else to turn. You give us refuge and you make us safe when life is anything but that. Lord, you are a good, holy, righteous, and just God. And I just pray that anyone who feels the need to call out to you right now would do that. That they would have the intense courage to rejoice in times of difficulty. That they would choose to make you their refuge, their king. Thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love that welcomes sinners like 
me. You are a good and just God. And we love you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.